Alright, this morning we're going to begin our second lesson on studying Calvinism. And again, we're not looking at an overview of Calvinism, but we're targeting uh, things that we think will be the most effective in reaching out to other people. And what we're going to look at in just a minute is question number four from the last time about the foreknowledge of God. And this is often brought up about God's foreknowledge. The fact that He knows what we're going to do before we do it, doesn't that mean that we have to do it? Doesn't that demand for ordination? So before we, before I pop that question on you guys, we're going, to, we're going to try to loosen up our brains a little bit and do a little bit of review. Here we talked about the, the five points of Calvinism. Uh, not included in the five, but absolutely the essential foundation is the sovereignty of God. And the idea that God is the ultimate, He's the supreme, He's the absolute being, all knowledge, all power, all authority, and all will. He is supreme in all ways. So who can possibly make decisions beyond what he has decided? And one of the choices that he made is that Adam would sin, and by doing that, that he would corrupt himself and all of his children. And because of that, we are totally inherited to pray, or we have inherited a total depraved nature, and we're completely wicked and evil from birth. Now, if God wanted to save some, which he chose to do, we would be unable to respond to anything that God would offer. Therefore, it is absolutely necessary under Calvinism that God unconditionally choose whoever was going to be saved. Because under point number two, it's impossible for us to do anything. So it has to be unconditional. And really, this is the main points of Calvinism, I would say, like the main assumptions. First of all, that God is sovereign, but we would agree with that. But they would go beyond and say, well, God absolutely exercises his sovereignty in all all matters, all choices, all wills. So that would be like one of the first assumptions. The second assumption is that God chose for Adam to sin. And the third assumption is, as a result of that, that man's nature was changed and that was passed on to all of his children. Once these assumptions are set up, everything just follows from there. And most of the discussions I've seen with other people, they actually focus on this first page. Because really, once you have this established, the other just naturally follows. So this is where most of the discussions always occur, and this is where we'll spend the most of our time. The natural consequences of this, you can see that since, since, and since, because of this, then Jesus' cross was only intended for a certain subset, just the elect. And since these people can't do anything, then God has to irresistibly call them. This is also called the efficacious grace. And if God has made this choice for them to be saved, then obviously they're going to endure to the end. They will persevere. All right, we mentioned last time some notable people. This is not too important, except for it's been my experience that for some people on the other side, this is very important. And so if you're not familiar with this, you could be at a disadvantage. So I just wanted to mention these people to you. Augustine and Pelagius, some of the first few people to uh, kind of battle on this. And then Calvin, of course, wrote his Institutes of Christian Religion. And then Jacob Arminius, who came along after him and questioned him. The people that tend to agree with Arminius are usually called Arminians by the Calvinists. Although it's typically not something they would accept. And then uh, R.C. Sproul is a modern-day theologian who has a lot of material out on the web, and and you will find that a lot of the things you hear people say are coming from his mouth more or less today. We talked about some mental barriers, and I think this is important to, to think about as we go into this discussion, try to identify the various barriers that we face. And last time we talked about the Bible's view of God's sovereignty. And 
Certainly God is sovereign, but he never wills sin. And he never wills sin. Remember he said, uh, speaking of the Israelites, speaking of them offering their children as sacrifices, that was not something that ever even entered into his heart. He didn't command it. It didn't even enter into his heart. But under Calvinism, it would have had to have not only come into his heart, it would have had to been something that he willed. So this specifically contradicts Calvinism. And then we see passages where God, in this case, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, through Moses begs men to repent. And he clearly says, I've set before you life and death. Well, in Calvinism, that's not the case. Whatever is set before you, that's it. There's not an option. When Moses said he set before both of them, then he says to choose life. All right, and then to me, this is very powerful. In Matthew 23, 37, you see Jesus saying, How often, crying over Jerusalem, how often I would gather you as a hen gathers her chickens underneath her wings, and I was willing, but you were not. Again, showing that not only man does have will, but that he can resist the will of God. So as we mentioned before, Calvin's response is, Well, that's just the appearance of choice. God made it look that way. He's kind of put on a show for us, but that's not really the case. Pete? I've never looked this up. How many denominations inspired this covenant? I don't know. I, I would, many of them for sure, Presbyterian, the Reformed churches, uh, they, they were the ones who were most influenced by Calvin. Uh, the Baptist church, uh, the Baptist denomination is really having a struggle with this internally. And in fact, a lot of the material you'll see is Baptists that would be Armenian and then Baptists who are Calvinists fighting it out. Sproul is a Baptist, if I remember right. Primitive Baptists are much into it. Yes, Primitive Baptists would be the ones that uh, would definitely be the most into Calvinists. And then if you ever hear the free will Baptists, then obviously they're, they would be on the opposite side. Uh, Methodists, as we talked about earlier, is Armenian. Um, Catholics, they believe in original sin. And then, of course, they, they're aligned with Aquinas and Augustine. So they would believe some of this, but not, I don't think they would push it quite as hard as Calvin would. Any other denominations anybody can think of that are significant that would fall on this one side or the other? Is there a group that call themselves Calvinists? The Reformed churches would be the ones who, like, most closely would say, okay, we came from Calvin. And... Um, they would be like the Reformed churches in the Netherlands and, and Dutch. Uh, they would they would be the most closely, I would think. But a Presbyterian church is traced very closely to him as well. It would be safe to say that most Baptists that would be probably wouldn't embrace a lot of that. But there are certain parts of it that would, such as yes, yes. That's a good point. Is that this is not uh, a doctrine where you take all of it or none of it that you'll find a huge spectrum of belief. And uh, I think we mentioned this last time. There's people that would call themselves hyper-Calvinists. They would accept everything that's said here. They believe in double predestination, predestination of both the uh, the elect and the damned. Uh, but you would find that many people today will say, well, God elected them to be saved, but I don't buy into this idea that he's shut some people out. And so they like to kind of pick and choose the more pleasant parts. And so you'll find what they call themselves three-point, four-point Calvinists. They hold to some of the points, but not all five. So there's there's definitely a huge variety uh, in people. In, I would say in any given denomination, you'll find a huge variety. And that's important to keep in mind when you're talking to people. Don't assume what they believe. All right, so let's get to this question number four. What about this question that foreknowledge demands coordination? This is question number four from last time. What do you guys think? A good example of that not being true is 
1 Samuel 23 when David asked God when he was in the city of Kiel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he asked God, is Saul going to come down? Right. God said, yes, he will come down. Well, the men of the city deliver me into his hand. Yes, that they will. So God's telling him something that would happen. Mm-hmm. And yet David and his men escaped the city. Went, Saul never went down there. Certainly that never happened. So that's showing that God gave David the choice to leave. And he mm-hmm. ordained all that to happen. That's right. That's right. And we'll actually look at that a little bit later. There's, there's several cases where God decreed a certain thing would happen and it didn't happen. Men responded to that and changed and because of that history changed as well. Any other thoughts? Scott? I think when a person takes that opinion, they're trying to, they're limiting God and they're bounding God into the realm of the way things appear to us or seem to us are, would be true of us. And you just can't do that. You have to accept the fact that God can have full knowledge and know that at the same time, uh, people have free will to choose whichever way they want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we can't really, we can't comprehend that or, or, or make that make sense of that. But, you know, whether God chooses not to know, I don't, to me, I don't know if that's the case or if he, and if he does know, people still have the same free will. I have no problem accepting that. Right. It's just, it's hard for us to make sense of that. Well, I think what you said earlier about thinking of God in the same way that we think of ourselves, I think that's the important key. As I've grown up, this has been the answer I've heard the most, that God chooses not to know. But And that's that's appealing. It's very easy, right? We can just kind of brush it off and say, well, God is God, chooses what not to know. But if you think about that for a second, that's got some problems. I mean, God has ordained certain things that are going to happen, like the Messiah. And, you know, uh, think about Cyrus. I mean, all these different things that throughout history, God has chosen certain things to occur. That means he had to intervene and he had to manipulate things to ensure that they would occur. And, you know, as in, in Isaiah says, this, is that he's declared something and then he brings it about. Clearly, he's intervening. The problem is, is how does he know what, you know, proverbial rocks to look under and not look under? He says, okay, well, I need to know this so I can do this decision, but oh, I've just entered, I've just disturbed somebody's free moral choice. Well, I'm going to not know that now. And that's just inconceivable to think of God not knowing something and then figuring things out and then choosing to unknow it. That's just crazy to even think about. So I think the reality of that is not so good. I think the key is, is to recognize God is nothing like us. He exists outside of time. His foreknowledge is in essence based on events that are past to him. He is not um, and I, I think this is important to think about. The Pharisees or Sadducees actually brought to Jesus a supposedly unanswerable question. And he told them that they, they greatly err. And for two reasons. They didn't know the scriptures and they underestimated the power of God. And I think this is the same thing that's happening here. Uh, I want to look at a few scriptures. Second Peter 3.8 Remember what Peter said, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day to God. Well, those are going in completely two different directions. They're irrational together. The only way this makes sense is that time has no meaning to God. He exists outside of time. Time is neither slow nor fast to him. He's going, he exists outside. And then when God identified himself to Moses, he said, I am who I am, not the I was, I am, I will be. He is the existing one. He is the present one. In fact, that's what Jehovah means, is the existing one. And so this is his name. This is who he is. So he's a being who exists outside of time. So he transcends time. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, everything is in essence past tense to God. 
known to God from eternity are all his works. This is something that he already knows. Well, if he knows what he's going to do, and some of the things that he does is in response to us, well, what does he necessarily know as well? What we do. All right. And in the Romans, I think this is this is interesting, where Paul says, he calls those things which do not exist as though they did. He speaks, of, and if you go through the prophets, you see that. He speaks of future events in the past tense. This is what happened. This is what happened. Not this is what will happen, but it has already happened. So he his vantage point is from eternity outside of time. He speaks of future events in the past tense. So this is the key to, I believe, to understand this, that God is not man. He's nothing like us. And he exists outside of time. And so what that says is, is that his foreknowledge uh, does, can precede uh, the events uh, for ordination. There are two different things. Paul brought this out in his sermon the other night in Romans 8, 28-29. And we'll look at that in more detail in just a second. Okay, question number five. The Bible clearly teaches the doctrines of predestination and election of man by God. And you got reference to Romans 8, 29 through 30 and Ephesians 1, 3 through 11. How would you answer that? When we go to those verses, and that's exactly what we see, is we see the doctrines of election and coordination. Those words are clearly brought out in the text. I think that's the key point. Yes, I have no disagreement with the fact that election, coordination, predestination, those are Bible doctrines. But the problem is, what is the basis of the predestination and the election? That's really what's up for discussion. That's the question that's being brought up. So let's just briefly skim Ephesians 1, 3 through 11. What is, notice the election. In Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then over and over again, you see it's by Jesus Christ, in him, in Christ, in him, in him. What is the basis of the foreordination of the for, or the, the election, the predestination? It's, the basis is in Christ. What God chose is not us by individuals, but he chose Jesus, and he chose by him the means of our salvation. So what is the basis of the election? It's a corporate election in Christ. Believing on him is the door to salvation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, sent, he sent us not only... Did he preach that himself, but his apostles, mm-hmm. he sent them out in the Great Commission, go out and preach all. That's right. So what we see is that, that Jesus, or that the election is not individual. It's not Greg, but not, not Patton, but Weldon, but not Ralph. It's not like that. It's a corporate election. He chose Jesus and whoever was in Jesus and would be part of Jesus. Those are the people that would be saved. Again, say it another way. Is it an arbitrary or is it characteristic? In other words, think about verses where God says that he has rejected the proud, but he's drawn or embraced the humble. God has certain kinds of people that he is looking for. Again, it's not a particular individual, but it's a kind of individual. And that satisfies this text just as well. And then you think of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 1 through 10. If we go a little further in, in the Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, you, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So it involves certain things. I'm sure yes. they were, the plan is what was predestined, not, not the individual. Now the, the Calvinists would have, you know, some answers. This is one of the things you get into is kind of a, almost a, a race with them. They bring this prejudice, you know, uh, context that they're wrapping around all this. 
And so what they would say is, is that God not only elected the individuals, but he also elected the means or the plan by which they would be saved. So this evangelism, us reaching out to other people, this is all part of God's plan. This is all part of his working things out. And so they have no problem with verses like that in the Bible because they see that as part of God's working his plan out. And that's just part of uh, part of what he's uh, foreordained. But I think the key is when you're looking at this, there is an assumption here. And to recognize the assumption and to point it out, they've assumed that the election is individual and that it's outside of anything you can do. You can find anything in the text there. In fact, the text points to the election being a corporate election in Christ. So we need to be careful that we don't uh, assume a prejudice def- definition. All right, and then looking at Romans 8, 28 and 29, here's these words again. And I think you'll find people that will read these verses to you and they'll, they'll shut their Bible and they'll say, you know, open shut case. I've made my case. And well, how are they doing that? They're doing it because they have a certain definition that they've attached to these words. And whenever they see those words, they assume that text must be teaching what they believe. And what you have to do is say you have to push them to the text and get them to look a little bit more closely at it. Now, one of the things I would make the exact same points again what is the basis of the predestination? What is the basis of the foreknowledge? It's something that they're assuming. This text is not really bringing that out. But what it does bring out, which is important, is notice the chain of events. Notice the precedence here. First we have foreknowledge, then predestination, then calling, then justification, and then glorification. Just as these events are not the same, these events are not the same. They're two completely different events. And in Calvinism, the idea is that God is the super being. He is the one who has made all choices. And because he's chosen, then he knows what's going to happen. Well, that's the opposite order of what you see in the scripture. You see him foreknowing, and then based on that, then he predestines, then he foreordinates. So you see the opposite order from Calvinism. And then you see that it's two different things. They're not necessarily inherent with each other. Right, right. That that's a good good tactic. All right. So, at best, these passages are ambiguous. At best, in the worst case, I think they're actually even damaging to the Calvinist position because it shows that the election, if you look at the text, is in Jesus. It's a corporate election, not an individual election. But in the best case, it's ambiguous. And if a verse can be made to say one thing or the other, then it doesn't either, it doesn't help either position and it can't really be used. Alright, this is another one of our questions, number six, John 1, 12 through 13. It clearly states that that God's, our salvation has nothing to do with our will. It says, not of our will, but of God's will. How would you answer that? Doug? I was thinking of 2 Peter 3 and, and verse 9 there, mm-hmm. where it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but as long as suffering for us, not willing that any should bury it, mm-hmm. but that all should come to repentance, which encompasses everybody. It's not just a certain group of people. Uh-huh. It's all men to come to repentance. So I, I think this is that clearly states that uh, we're saved by God's will. But why would he even put this verse in the Bible if that was the case? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't know how to answer that, but, I, but I, to me it's just there, there's, there's contradicting information. If I want to go with this state of uh, school of thought here, 
Right. So you, you would go with Second Peter 3 in that case as being the, the, the important passage to look at. I think it would be one of them. Now the Calvinist, he would, he would go the other way. He would say, I don't understand Second Peter 3, but I understand John 1. Therefore, I'm going to push Second Peter 3 away and I'm going to stick with John 1. So, well, if something states a particular thing, then, uh, then it doesn't really mean that. It, it, it just seems to mean that. Mm-hmm. They got mm-hmm. a bad answer for everything. That's right. That's right. You, you have to, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Now, the reason why I bring that up is either position on either side has to not only be able to present verses that support itself, it's got to be able to answer the other side. Otherwise, What's the difference between the signs? So we need to be able to answer these verses as well. Another verse would be Matthew 7. We can go to Matthew 7, 20, uh, 21. He that doeth the will of my Father. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. But you, I think we run into this dilemma with more, we're trying to reach out to other people is that we feel like we have lots of verses, hundreds of verses that support our position, but they feel that way too. And so what happens is if we don't actually answer their verses. If we just answer them by providing them more verses, then it's just water going down a duck's back. They're not going to hear it. We've got to actually first answer the verses that they bring up, or we're not going to be able, they're not going to listen to us. So I think the key is, is to look at the context in this. So it, when you first look at it, if you're sitting there you know, with someone who believes this, it can be very overwhelming if you've not looked at it before. But as many as have received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, so it's not whether they're Jew or Gentile, not of the will of the flesh, not what you want, not the will of man, I mean he's emphasizing it, it's not what you want, but it's of God. Well, the key to this passage is is, is to realize there's a, a very famous uh, construction of the language. He's got this nor, nor, or not not but. The idea is, is the Calvinist is trying to put you in what we would call a false dilemma. They're trying to say, here's a dilemma. It's either God's will or it's your will. It's one or the other. Choose one of the extremes, but it's one or the other. Clearly, it's not our will. It's God's will. Case closed. Well, the problem is, is what about the middle? Is, is there no option? Is there no option between these two extremes? Those are good questions, but let's, I think, what we want to say is, or what we want to show and teach them, is that really this is a relative comparison. It's very common throughout the Bible. <coughs> just as a good illustration, uh, look at John six twenty seven, where Jesus says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Well, does he mean we're not supposed to have jobs? Or we're not supposed to go work? And we're not supposed to go get food? No, no, that's clearly what he, not what he's saying. He's telling us what's the most important. The most important is the spiritual food. Well, it's the exact same thing here. In the plan of salvation, our justification, what is the most important, the most significant, the most foundational? Well, it's God's will. We could will all day long, and without God, we could do nothing. God's will is the primary one and is the uh, preceding one in this, this chain of events. Get a point there that's uh, important to this, and that is our relationship with God is a covenant relationship. Anytime you have a covenant, there's two sides of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And both sides, you got to keep their part of the covenant in order to, order to do its job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a good point. And there's several other passages that... Uh, I'm right, about one there. Just, uh-huh. just, uh, I'm sure they have an answer, but 
<laughs> there is choice in this passage. We don't have to go to the next passage. In that passage right there, it, it answers their uh, their arguments. Which one? This one? Yeah. Uh, as many as receive him. There's yes. a choice. You receive yes. him or you don't receive him. To them he gave the right to become sons of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You either choose to become or you choose not to. Mm-hmm. The first part of that passage, choice, is, right. is the is the main thought. And, and the key there is also the right to become children of God. Uh-huh. That's what the emphasis is. The right to become children of God is what was by the will of God, not by the will of man. Very good. So uh, our believing and our receiving him, that clearly is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I think that that's key when you're going through this with other people. When I first started studying with other people on this topic, they would have an answer. And I'd say, well, let's go to the next verse. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the next verse. And you find yourself just kind of running in circles. You need to to focus. You're not going to be able to answer this with by this multitude of verses. You're going to have to find some verses and really understand them. Get familiar with the answers and start noticing things like this about the right as many as a receive, so you can hold your ground and not be just pushed on to the next verse. Uh, very good points. So to me, as far as the, to answer their specific concern, um, the idea is not that it's just God's will. But to realize there's this not but construction. It's implying a relative comparison. It's not absolute. Lots of other verses that have that same construction, and we'll see it again before the day is over. So it's a false dilemma. We mentioned it's either God's will or man's will. Well, is there not another option between these extremes? And in the meaning we've already discussed, that God's will is the significant one. We cannot be saved without his will, no matter how much we willed it. But that being true does not negate our own will. All right, now we're going to go on the offensive just a little bit. Greg already brought this up. Some unfulfilled decrees of God. Well, multiple times God said, okay, this is what's going to happen. But then man listened to that, responded, and history changed. What God said would happen did not occur. Well, how does the Calvinist answer this? And again, this is where they can come up with a pat answer real quick. But if you hold your ground and hold their feet to the fire, they're not going to be able to get off of this. So... Was his decree based on man's current course of choice? Or uh, how can the Calvinists explain this? Did God lie? Did he fail to predict? Did he not see what was going to happen? This is a real dilemma for them. Either, either God lied or he failed to see what was going to happen. Or man had some choice in this. And again, they can say, well, it's the appearance of choice. No, there is no appearance. There is only God's will. If God says what's going to happen, then that's the only thing that's going to happen. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it, paints them into this corner beautifully because it says it is the immutable mm-hmm. will of God. It is his immutable. In other words, once he, he puts it in place, it cannot be changed. <coughs> right, right, exactly. And logically, I think you get to that conclusion as well. That if you say that God is the supreme will, there's no other way around that. And what you'll find is people will start backing off of this and say, well, you can, you do have free will. It's just not in accordance to anything that's morally related as far as salvation. Well, but that's what we're talking about. That's really all we care about. So that doesn't buy them anything. So you'll find there's different ways they try to backpedal a little bit. But again, if you hold their feet to their fire, they're not going to really be able to get off of this. So Joshua, remember what he said? In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. But then they repented, and it wasn't. And it's been... You know, a lot more than 40 days. Remember what uh, Hezekiah was told? He was going to die very soon. And in the one that Greg brought up earlier, David's betrayal by the men of Keilah, that never happened because 
God said that's what would happen, and David listened to him, and then he left. The men never had a chance to betray him and turn him over. All right, I think this is a, another good question. I've, I've phrased it the other way. This refers to question number eight in your handout from last time. If God absolutely determines man's fall and choice is relevant to his salvation, how can God not be the author and the originator of sin? This is sovereignty, not absolute. And I, uh, Greg mentioned this already, the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. Now this kind of reminds me of what Scott mentioned the other day with, uh, with our Methodist friends, where they like to word things in a very flowery way such that they have their cake and they can eat it too. This is exactly what's happening here. So God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. Neither is the liberty or the contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. In other words, God makes all the choices. He's chosen everything, but yet somehow he did not choose sin. And yet somehow he is not changing what you want to happen either. And and this is a case of having your cake and eating it too. They both cannot be true. He is either absolutely sovereign or he's not. If he's absolutely sovereign, that means sin was part of his choice, and that means when you sin, that's part of his choice as well. So he is absolutely the author of sin. And Calvin embraced that. Uh, I don't know if I, I included any quotes in that, but Calvin, uh, to be fair to him, he was consistent. And what you see is people since him, they're, they're shying away from that, and they don't like that. Uh, that conclusion, but he was he was very consistent in that. And it's an unavoidable consequence of the fact that they believe that he's absolute. All right, here's some more questions. I think uh, this is good to think about this idea of sovereignty. If there's only one will, how can man be justly held responsible? If God's will is always performed, why does he rebuke his compliant creation? Why does God object to sin if he chose it? Why do events not always conform to God's revealed will? Why does God lament over man's choices if God made them? Why does God punish his creation when it ultimately complies just as he instructed? And then finally, where is the Bible basis for this view of God's sovereignty? I mean, we're wrapping around their view around the text, but where are the verses that ultimately support it? And again, and this is the thing that we noticed that those uh, early Christians in the, the first and second century mentioned, is that if you take this position, you're impugning the justice of God. You're making him responsible for sin, and then he's turning around and he's punishing everybody for doing exactly what he told them to do. And so it makes God to be evil. It makes him to be a wicked tyrant and unfair and unjust in the most extreme sense. So how does the, the Calvinist answer this? Uh, this is a quote from a, a good book on this topic, Robert Shanks, Elect in the Sun. If you bear with me, let me read this. It is understandable that, and he's speaking of Calvin, it is understandable that in his polemics, laboring as he did under the burden of so many radical contradictions implicit in his theology, Calvin so often was driven to quit the field. In other words, he would just give up when he would get to these difficult passages. And he would do so with such appeals as, Nay, but O oh man, who art thou that replies against God? And to God belong the secret things. Oh, the depth, how unsearchable. Our God is in heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Such appeals are regularly made whenever Calvin finds himself boxed in dialectically, which is often. Quitting the field with such appeal, Calvin proceeds as if he has made his point, which he never does in so many instances. 
in which he resorts to his well-known escape text as a means of begging the question. And this has generally been my experience as well, and this is what uh, Brother Ralph was alluding to, is that eventually you get them boxed in, and they're going to pull out some of these verses and just say, well, who are we to question God? Who are we to complain and say that God has not been fair? And uh, to which my reply is always to go back to Romans 3, verses 28 through 29, is that again, God intended to use the cross, our means of justification, as a means of teaching us his just nature. And if we're saying it's a mystery, we can't figure it out, it's too hard, then we're saying God failed as a teacher. And we're, uh, again, we're impugning God, whether it's his ability to teach or its ability to be just, one way or the other, we're impugning him with the Calvinist positions. Alright, let's switch gears and talk about total inherited depravity. Again, I think there's this difficulty in communicating. Think about these phrases. Man is incapable of saving himself. Would you agree with that? Yeah. But what do you mean? And, uh, and that's where the difficulty lies. When they say that and when you say that, there's two different thoughts that are being considered. Um, and as we brought up already, there's some inconsistencies in the modern neo-Calvinism 2.3.4. And even the Arminian viewpoint. And they believe that man is depraved, he's born in original sin, but yet somehow unbaptized babies go to heaven. And so there's an inconsistency there. And they believe that you know man is depraved, but yet somehow he can choose to obey the gospel. Uh, you can't have your cake and eat it too. There's there's these inconsistency and in these um, these uh, weaker positions where people are trying to back away from everything Calvin said, or the the uglier consequences and conclusions. All right, here's a statement from the Westminster Confession of Faith where they talk about man's has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good. And so this idea that uh, we're completely evil, wicked, depraved, there's no good within us whatsoever. All right, and here's some of the proof texts we're going to start looking at. This is question number 10. The, uh, in Jeremiah 17 and 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then in Romans 3, 9 through 12, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands, none who seeks after God. How would you answer those proof texts that shows that we're, people are completely depraved? That, that's a good point. I would say 98% of their proof texts fall into this category. Where do you see in these verses where it talks about these people being born this way? It's not in there. It's assumed. And it, again, if you're sitting down with somebody looking at the Bible and they're pressing their point, it's hard to see that. But that's what you've got to do is say, okay, what is the assumption that's being made and then help them to see it? There's nothing in these verses that said these people were born this way. And in fact, Romans 3 says quite the opposite. How did they get that way? They have all turned aside. Yes, yes. Thank you. Very good. So as you start looking at the text, uh, if you go back, and I think an important thing is, is when you look, especially where Old Testament passages are quoted in the New Testament, look at the text. Look around the context. Look around the context of the passage that was quoted. You'll see this is not talking about babies. It's not talking about infants. It's talking about adults who have chosen a certain path. So if you start looking at their proof text a little more closely, it actually becomes quite damaging. Jeremiah chapter 17, it's called, is the man. Mm-hmm. Not blessed is the child, but blessed is the man. So, and I, I go. I guess that's general, but mm-hmm. it's, it's still it's not specifically stating it's a newborn or it's a 
as a child or does that Yes. Again, if, if you look at, at the passages in detail, you'll start finding very quickly that 98% of their proof texts that they use like this, just start looking around a little bit and you'll find that it, it doesn't uh, make their point at all and actually becomes quite damaging to what they're trying to say. So the point is, is not to assume uh, the point to be proven. Alright, and this is one of the kind of the more modern uh, push-offs. So the psalmist, oh I'm sorry, this is not. Uh, the psalmist plainly declares that he was born sinful, quoting Psalm 51.5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And that's a direct quote there from Psalm 51.5. How would you answer that proof text? Alternate rendering of that, I was conceived in sin, and certainly there was sin at the the the, the point of narrative. There is from the point of the perspective of the child who was conceived in sin. It's a horrible translation. The NIV is the only translation that renders it that way. Every other translation says, "I was brought forth in iniquity, brought forth in iniquity, brought forth in iniquity," and then young's little. I, low in iniquity I've been brought forth. The idea is that in what stage was, and again, here's, this is a parallel thought, and in sin my mother conceived me. The point is, is his very beginning, even at birth, or not at birth, but at conception and before that, that he was brought forth in iniquity. So again, the, the reference is really to his mother, not to himself. So it's uh, and I think that's a key point is to look at, at alternate translations. I've been bit by that more than once. Uh, don't just focus on one translation. All right, and here's one of the pushbacks. Um, no, 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 you misunderstand. I don't believe that I was born a sinner, only sinful, not guilty of sin, only predisposed to sin. You catch the nuance there. The idea being is, look, babies are that are born and. They're going to die and they're going to go to heaven. That's not a problem because they're not actually guilty of sin. If they live long enough, however, then they will inevitably sin. So there's this nature to man that he's predisposed to sin. He's not guilty of sin. He's not born that way. He just has this nature where he's going to sin. If a person, say, is born uh, in some place where the gospel is not known, and he lives his whole life uh, in that situation like that. Is he very likely to become righteous? Though, is, is, which which direction is he most likely to go? I, I've not heard them really to address that. He's most likely going uh, to uh, commit sin. We have yeah. to be taught the gospel. We have to be shown a, a more excellent yes. way. Yes. Uh, or else we will. It's not in man to walk in directions on the steps. So. I think this is just a temporary dodge. It acknowledges there's this initial innocence, but it still condemns us spiritually by God's decree. In other words, why was I born sinful? Well, I was born sinful because of Adam's mistake. In the end, I'm going to sin inevitably because of something that Adam did. So in essence, it's the exact same statement. It saves them this unpleasant idea about the babies. But either way, it's still God's fault that all adults go to hell under Calvinism. One quick thing on that is, okay, so we got our sin from Adam. So Adam didn't wasn't born with this inherited sin. Well, then what advantage did Adam have? He still sinned, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah good and, point. And if we're all born with Adam's sin on us, how, how was Christ without sin? Uh, they get around that by saying that he was the, the immaculate conception, that he was born of woman and not of man. So his, his heavenly father was, was the father. All right.
So every morning, in fact, that's the whole reason for that doctrine is, is to get around that problem. Every man is born innocent as were Adam and Eve before their sin. And this is what I believe. And I think some good proof texts, you look at Moses, what did he say about the children of Israel? That they were born without knowledge or they were, their children were in a state of not knowing good or evil. Well, that was the exact same state that Adam and Eve were in. Remember, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were, it is what they partook of and changed them. So our children are actually born in that same condition. Jesus tells us to be like little children. Not elect children, but to be like little children. So this is before an elect person would actually be regenerated. And this is what God and Jesus hold up as examples to be like. So what we see, though, is that man can become hardened gradually through the rejection of God and repeated sin. You guys are very familiar with Romans 1 and the, the fall of the Gentiles there about how they, God gave, they gave God up and so God gave them up to reprobate minds. In such a state, man's heart and conscience is hardened past feeling. And other familiar proof texts, God judges people based on their own deeds. And again, we're looking not just at man's nature, but really this is an accusation against God. And so what we see is in answering that is that God judges people based on their own deeds. And then he specifically stated that he will not judge men based on the deeds of their fathers or children. I mean, Ezekiel 18 and Jeremiah 31 clearly refute this doctrine. And the best answer I've seen somebody give me is, well, that was the Old Testament. (laughs) And I think this is also interesting. God condemns punishment of children based on their father's sins. So if Calvinism is true, God holds us to a higher standard than he holds himself. That he's telling us, okay, do not punish children based on what their parents do. And that's what that was the old law, and we see kings doing that and being commended. But if Calvinism is true, that's what he's done to the entire human race. He's punishing us all because of what Adam did. So again, that that's my greatest problem in the end with Calvinism is that it's it's blasphemous, that it impugns the very nature of God. Alright, so look at this idea of initial innocence, the passage we noted there, about the children having no knowledge of good and evil, and again Jesus telling us to be like little children. And remember, children are in heaven, we're told in Matthew 19, 14 and Revelation 21, 27. So let's switch gears to unconditional election. Um, we have a few quotes here. And, and what you find is it's almost impossible to separate this point from the idea of sovereignty. And the, the, the proof texts go back and forth. Uh, so really, we're kind of continuing this idea of God's sovereignty. About God foreknowing and he foreordains. And that we have this, again, uh, quotes from Calvin. We have what's called double predestination. Some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. This is rejected by most Calvinists today, but Calvin and hyper-Calvinists believe in this double predestination. And uh, and we see that uh, God in his own pleasure arranged it, the fall of Adam. So uh, Calvin very well understood the logical consequences and accepted those. All right. Um, proof text, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This is one uh, I'm sure you've probably heard before where it says that uh, your faith is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And so that's interpreted as being your faith is not your faith. God gave it to you. He pushed that into you. So we'll pick up with that question next time. All right. Thank you for your time and attention.